right. Well, welcome to another Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, where we're allowed to geek out with fellow nerds, and there's no loss of conscious thought as people's eyes glaze over. Uh, today, I'm proud to introduce Drew Harris, who helped one of the casinos on the Strip become the first one to go fully hyper-converged, and during his next opportunity, went 100% cloud. So, uh, Drew, tell us a little about yourself, and let's talk about that journey, um, hyper-convergence, and what it means to be 100% cloud. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, this is a great opportunity, and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to having an open discussion about this. Um, yeah, just a little bit about myself. I've uh, been in information technology almost 30 years now. Um, I've done various verticals, uh, you know, almost 10 years uh, sled with the state of Florida. Um, you know, I've been in banking and finance with a lot of virtualization, uh, casino hospitality for five years, and uh, public company um, before coming over as an executive advisor with the current company I'm with. Um, so yeah, I, I've done a lot of um, technology and infrastructure. And like I like to tell my engineers, I don't have them do anything I haven't done myself. So I'm an engineer by trade. And so, uh, you know, having the opportunity when I did to come on to the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas and uh, help them with their journey to go from that traditional, you know, server, sand, you know, EMC Dell architecture stack and move into a hyper-converged infrastructure was a, a great opportunity, right? And a great learning experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the first few times that I started looking at hyper-convergence, it was mainly because there was some kind of an issue and it was, you always had to look at one of the three areas of it. It was either the host, it was either the network fabric, or it was the SAN, or a combination of all three in the configurations. So hyperconvergence helped bring all of that together into a single unit and uh, hopefully made life easier. We we actually decided to jump towards the cloud before we ever went hyperconverged. But so tell me a little about trying to take a casino from that level of infrastructure down to a hyperconverged infrastructure. Uh, I wish I could say it was easy, but it was not. Uh, oh, not. <laughs> yeah, because you had to keep everything running, right? You know, this yes. is one of those truly switching out the engines while the plane's in flight. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's exactly that. I mean, casinos are open 24-7-365. Um, you know, our, our um, president, CEO of the Cosmopolitan at the time, um, told us, I think, that the casinos had only ever closed three times, 9-11 for like eight hours, and then also uh, during COVID. Right. So, um, yeah, taking uh, taking the movement systems in a 24 by 7 environment and uh, moving them into something that's hyper conversion at the time was net new. Um, it was new technology. That was uh, a challenge, but it was fun. It was a great challenge. And we, we learned a lot, you know, analyzing what our current capabilities were when I walked in the door. It would take um, 12 to 24 hours to provision storage between two data centers. Right. Um, and then, you know, it took anywhere from eight to 12 hours to set up a VM just to get the OS on it, then fully patch it and all these things. Um, and then work out all the, the routing, switching and firewalls because there was, it was, uh, overly complicated and it needed to be simplified. So, um, there was a lot of work that had to be done for every application. Um, you know, so we had to catalog every application. We had to understand who the stakeholders were for every application. Um, build in maintenance windows for those applications, right? Um, and then go back and do a fair amount of analysis, understanding uh, CPU needs, IOPS, um, 
networking needs, things like that. Um, a lot of it was um, talking to the manufacturers of the applications, right? The vendors of the applications. Um, and sometimes they they still develop their applications to run on bare metal, right? Uh, a one-for-one server, for instance. Um, well, yeah, they always want that because they want to make sure that they they have complete control over that environment or that there's no unknowns that they're not expecting in the middle of it. Exactly. So, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, all right, well, you know, here's the in-depth analysis of your application from the app stack all the way down to the DB and what's running on the network. Here's that analysis. Here's where it fits in a virtual environment with a little bit of growth. And then going through a process of um, putting together a plan of seamlessly moving those applications over one at a time um, and using various tools that were out there and available to us. Uh, we we were unique in using Zerto, for instance. Um, a lot of people use Zerto for uh, DRBCP or, sorry, I don't want to do the acronyms, but disaster recovery and business continuity planning. Um, to replicate this is one of the shows where it's perfectly okay to use all of that. And if <laughs> I don't understand it, I'll ask. But I know DR and BC, man. At Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, we expect to win and we expect our IT directors to win. And one of those areas where we know that we can help you win is internet service providers. As an IT director tasked with managing internet connectivity, few vendor relationships can prove more painfully frustrating than the one with your internet service provider. The array of challenges seems never-ending, from unreliable uptime and insufficient bandwidth to poor customer service and hidden fees. It's like getting stuck in rush hour traffic dealing with isps can try one's patience even on the best of days so whether you are managing one location or a hundred locations our back office support team and vendor partners are the best in the industry and the best part about this is none of this will ever cost you a dime due to the partnership and the sponsors that we have behind the scenes at dissecting popular it nerds let us show you how we can manage away the mediocrity and hit it out of the park. We start by mapping all of the available fiber routes and we use our 1.2 billion in combined customer buying power in massive economy of scale to map all of your locations, to overcome construction fees, to use industry historical data, to encourage providers to compete for the lowest possible pricing, to negotiate the lowest rates guaranteed, and to provide fast response times in hours, not days. And we leverage aggregators and wholesale relationships to ensure you get the best possible pricing available in the marketplace. And on top of all of this, you get proactive network monitoring and proactive alerts so that you're not left calling 1-800-GO-POUND-SAND to enter in a ticket number and wonder, why is my internet connection down? In short, we are the partner that you have always wanted who understands your needs, your frustrations, and knows what you need without you having to ask. So, we're still human, but we are some of the best and we aim to win. This all starts with a value discovery call where we find out what you have, why you have it, and what's on your roadmap. All you need to do is email internet at popularit.net and say, I want help managing all of my internet garbage. Please make my life easier and we'll get right on it for you. Have a wonderful day. So how how complex was that environment? How many applications did you end up cataloging? And we, and how much was cataloged prior to you trying to bring this on? Because that's that's always been one of the challenges is trying for me was trying to free up the resources to go 
through that list. Yeah, I rem- if I can recall, I want to say we had over a thousand servers between two data centers and then an offsite uh, DR data center. Okay. Um, and we had over, I think the number was over five or 600 applications. So the, the, um, the two centers, the two data centers, exact duplicates of each other or uh, a primary and a secondary. And, and did you have everything in the primary and the majority of it in the secondary, or was it, you know, talk to me a little about that. Cause that's, I always found myself, I had 50% over here, 50% over there, and then trying to get across the wires and making sure everything could switch to one. And, oh man, it was, it was a cluster. Yeah, I, I, I come, I, I cut my teeth in IT in Florida. So I like to say in Florida, we do DR first before we do production. And so <laughs> makes sense. I mean, yeah. And in so, that culture, that makes sense. All the hurricanes and everything else, but I mean, exactly. I, I, I worked hurricanes. I worked the, uh, the 04 and 05 hurricane seasons under Governor Jeb Bush. And so I, I, I've, I knew disaster recovery and how important it is and how to have, how sites are down and how quickly it is to get them back up. And I'm out in the Southwest where we got wind, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not hurricanes, not tornadoes, wind. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that was the thing. There was no, there was no process, no cataloging process done to identify those things and operationalize it. Right. So, um, you know, one of the very first things I did was, you know, we catalog, catalog, we cataloged all the applications, me and my team, um, went through to figure out who owned those on the IT side, but who was also the owner on the business side. Right. Yeah. yeah Cause you always got to have them. Cause they're the, they're going to be the ones that are complaining when you bring it down. Exactly. And, and with that, I enhanced it and added additional components to it. Like again, um, DRBCP, um, tiers. Right? Is this a tier zero application that could never go down, or is it a tier four, or tier five, where we can shut it down and nobody screams? Right. Right. Um, and then also looking at maintenance windows. Right. If it's a if it's not a tier zero, I gotta be able to have a maintenance window somewhere where I can take this application down and you know do preventative maintenance on it, patching, security updates, things like that. So um, that was the process we went through, um, sitting down, understanding, is this a critical application? If it's critical, why is it so critical, right? And we did that for every application. What that lent itself to do was we found a lot of applications where they're like, I don't even know why we have this. Yeah. How do we know it's using it? Yeah. Turn it off. You know, you know, go ahead and, it. <laughs> and that's, that's about the time that somebody starts screaming because they use it. They're just not in that, that communication loop that you were talking with. So then you have to have a, you have to have a, a really good, you know, our, our CIO at the time had a, introduced a really good change management methodology. So, you know, one of the things I did was I bolted on a decom process onto that change management process. Right. So my engineers would go through a decom process of first, we take a backup. Then we shut it down. We wait 30 days to see who screams. Nobody screams. We take a cold storage back up. Then we delete the BO, right? Um, and, nice. and, and so we introduced that per application. So we had a repository where each one was tagged it in our systems, things like that. So um, going through that process, and it did not take years. Uh, we were able to do the overall migration um, of all the na- non-gaming environment. And I think it took roughly, I want to say about nine to 10 months. Yeah. I was going to ask how long it took to, 
to catalog 500 applications. So nine to 10 months. How many yeah. people full time? Uh, let's see. I spearheaded the effort I had at the time. I think I had four engineers. Um, we had some what we termed application managers, um, that we were able to work with as well. Uh, I think there was roughly six or seven of them. Um, everybody still had their day-to-day -day jobs, <clears throat> excuse me, of, you know, keeping the lights on. But, um, this was, this was an important project as far as helping us make the environment more efficient. Right. And get on the more stable hardware. Um, that's, that's really what I believe having stable and secure environments are my first priority. So, so, was that one of the primary drivers? Was that instability? You had a little bit of the, uh, um, the gremlins in the network. Um, there were, there were three, um, we had gremlins in the network. So there was some instability and performance issues. Um, you know, there was the aging of the hardware, right? When you're in that traditional, server sand network fabric stack you've got um you know capital costs start to rear their heads right you got renewals that come up every three to five years and and of course none of the three tiers are are um three pieces of the fabric are aging out at the same time and exactly. which even if they were that would be even more of a problem because now you've got even more of a capital expenditure yeah. And then it just came down to efficiencies, right? I mean, it, we can't, we can't react for the business fast enough if we're taking, you know, two weeks to stand up one server to load one application on it. That, that's just not feasible. But business needs to run faster. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we need to deliver IT services at, at the speed of the business so the business can operate and, you know, they can, you know, generate revenue and, you know, help our customers and our guests and things like that. So that those were the three factors behind it. Yeah. And and I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking back to that day or those days when we would spec the server and everything else and and then we'd order it from the manufacturer. And and you're talking about, oh, two weeks to get it up and running and have it ready and and operational uh being too long. And and back then it was like a month between the time we started specs and and placed the order let mm -hmm. alone receive the hardware and started installing stuff um yeah but then yeah in today's world yeah we can spin something up like that you, you know, i was talking to somebody else and and they were setting up that automation in the uh in the cloud so that they could spin up spin up and spin down servers in a matter of minutes yeah well the the, the concern we had with being able to move that much faster ended up being server sprawl right now now the business realize realizes that you can run really fast right so now it's like oh i bought this thing this new shiny thing and i want you to install it right now and it's like yeah. all right so we're not going to go back to where we were where we have all these applications all over the place and all these virtual servers and we don't know what's what right and so doing all that work it's like all right you know what from here on out we have an application onboarding process right. and this process before a server is even built, there are key members in the room talking through specifications, licensing costs. And when is this going into production? <laughs> That's, you know, I, I'm sitting here, putting my head in my, uh, or shaking my head, you know, SMH, um, and thinking it's gotta be nice to have, or to be, at an organization that thinks that way, that acts that way, because I was still in that kind of that mom and pop. Yeah, they were uh, are approaching a billion dollars in revenue, but it was more of the mom and pop. And, you know, the 
it was, Hey, we just bought this thing, make it happen now. And, yeah. and quit talking to me about all that geek crap, you know, just make it happen. I want to see, I want to see this thing. I want the blinky lights to start blinking. Let's go. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, and, and that's one of the things that, you know, as a IT executive, you need to explain to the business, the benefits of doing the homework up front, right? Like, why are we doing all this work up front? And the reason we're doing that is so you have a stable and secure platform moving forward and the system is available when you need it, right? If I just shove it in, then you don't get minor things like we don't know if we've got the performance right or you're screaming when I bring it down because I need to patch it so we don't get hacked, right? So to do the work up front and to want the business on why we do it, then they can understand that later on. It's like, all right, you know what? This is the expectation of the software I have. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not expecting it to be able to do any more than this unless I engage with the IT team and really be partners in the effort, not to be somebody that's a roadblock for. How much how much WAN did you have to deal with? I, I'm kind of assuming that a majority of the stuff at the casino was all contained into a LAN versus um, you know, a major WAN environment environment. But that's an assumption. So yeah, it's it was a little different. I mean, all of our um, all of our networking components were on the property, right? So we had roughly, yeah. I think at the time, that's Paul ten on almost thirty five hundred rooms. Uh, excuse me. And so we had two data centers um, and a massive MDF um, and a lot of um, IDS. I think last count I remember is like one hundred sixty, one hundred seventy IDS. So we had a massive amount of networking. Yeah. Um, The data center, primary data center didn't hold 100% of everything. It was more like a, it was the primary and our secondary data center was really that. It was a backup critical things we can bring up just in time. Um, The the WAN component was interesting because, you know, the core itself was only in one location, right? Um, And so we didn't replicate that core. Uh, one for one with all the fiber connections and everything. We had some of the same hardware, but a lot of the physical fiber that was running the property was not redundant to both sides. Right. We did have a we did have some cross connects in there for bandwidth across the board between the two data centers. I think we were running in uh I want to say we were running about 200 gig throughput between the two data centers. Okay. Um and you know some you know some of the things that we took the opportunity to do, like we did a room refresh um, and in conjunction with the business, we were able to refresh the technology, right? So we, we, we literally ran 10 gig fiber to every room. Wow. (laughs) To every room in the, in the facility so that every, in the cosmopolitan, yeah. Had 10 gig run into every room, right. With one gig stepped off of each port. Right. And because we had done that application onboarding component, right, my network team at the time did the due diligence of making sure that every switch that went into every room, all 3000 plus, everything that was plugged in the same port was identical across every room. So the AP was in the six port in one room. It was in a six port across all 3000 rooms. Wow. Okay. Then, you know, if we needed to bounce the phones that were, the VoIP POE running off the switch, they were on the same port. We could reboot all the phones with the switch, which I automated command and just four five boom on all of these. And yeah, 
It's, nice. it's kind of like resetting your Cox modem at home or Comcast or whatever it is, right? They always tell you to reset your modem first when you have outage. A lot yeah. of times your VoIP phones are acting up. That's usually the same thing, right? So we would take a maintenance window with the business. We'd let the business know, hey, at 2 a.m. this time, we're going to reboot all the phones and they'll be down for 30 minutes. And we hit the button and our service desk would verify everything happened. And the network engineer that was running it would, yep, everything's back online. And that was it. Wow. Okay, cool. And and that's that's some discipline too, though, because man, you get so many a uh, three thousand room refresh. You probably had some subcontractors that were in the middle of that that you had to deal with, and you had to you had to hold them to the fire and have to go double check everything just to make sure. Otherwise, yeah. but so let's get back to that the data centers and and um, hopefully you never really had to, but it sounds like there were some potential challenges in that BCDR um, with not having every, not having a like for like on the data centers. Yeah, that's correct. We had a couple of times where we had to um, fail over um, from our primary to our secondary, whether it was um, network challenges or, you know, we, at times we weren't perfect. I mean, we'd have hardware that would fail like a firewall or something like that. Yeah. Um, and we'd need to fail over to the data center. Um, the great thing about it, um, at that point, you know, we kind of understood what our mission critical applications were. And yeah. we had advised those and replicated those appropriately in the hyper-converged infrastructure, right? So uh, we were running Nutanix at the time. And so we were replicating via Nutanix between the two data centers, right? right. Um, but since we had tagged everything and we knew what applications needed to be online, 24 7 365 right um we could just move just those and bring those up in the secondary data center if we had to right so an event that like like i said we would have a firewall outage or something like that um or we'd have a the internet connection coming into one data center was down we could flip over to the other and bring communications online and bring on you know the casino applications you know all the mission critical business apps that needed to be functioning at that time okay so what level did you take the um, BC2 when you talked about like your tier zero through the tier four, mm -hmm. um, was it all zero, one, two, or was it zero, one, two, three, and, and all the way through four that you had stuff ready for? Because you said you had like the secondary was a little bit smaller or, or couldn't take absolutely everything. So yeah. did you separate it that way or did you just separate it with? You know, these are the ones that they consider the most critical. So you had some zeros that would still go down. Did you have well, to go through that? Exercise? We, we went through the the process of doing away with things like traditional file servers and things like that. So yeah. a lot of times your biggest your biggest issue with replication between data centers is data storage size. Right. right? Okay. Backups. You got database video. Oh my God, you guys, you're, we're talking a casino. So we're talking thousands of cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Cameras, separate system, but yeah, cameras on that component, um, you know, file servers, yeah, understand, you know, nobody wants to throw away anything. So we probably had every email from the beginning of time for the cosmetic orders. Yeah. Since they were talking about building the place, um, which we did. Um, and so all you have all that data. So one of the things we did to be able to reduce that footprint was one, 
we were running Commvault at the time. We were one of the first organizations to shift our Commvault cold storage backups to Azure, right? So as opposed to running it on-prem in a data center and backing it up to a SAN or another set of servers or something like that, I'm like, no, we're not doing that. We backed it all up to Azure, right? All of our cold storage backups, anything after, I think it was after 30 or 90 days, one of those, um, went to Azure. Right. So like when I left, I think we were close to 2.8 petabytes in Azure. <laughs> I'm petabytes, huh? <laughs> yeah. I, all of it went there. So, but that helped because it helped reduce the footprint. Um, yeah. Also, you know, a lot of us working alongside and at the direction of the CIO at the time, you know, things like file servers. Well, we moved things to box, right? So it was in cloud storage. Right. Okay. So I'm reducing the footprint of some of the data stuff. So I don't have these massive, you know, six terabyte file servers that I have to send up shares for and things like that. We we did a process of working with the business and getting them over to bots and moving things over. Right. So once we started to do things like that, it started to reduce the footprint of what we needed for the VM storage. Mm-hmm. Right. And so from that standpoint, it got to the point where we could literally replicate all the storage because we had it identical on both sides for the on the hyperbridge infrastructure the storage footprint was identical so we could replicate the storage my constraint was and it's like this for everybody everybody understand you can't turn everything on at once nope. right you don't have <laughs> unlimited you don't have unlimited cpus and ram or you may have a, a limited network connection or whatever it is um and and we would have some of that right so you're you're having the issue of possible boom storms and things like that and so what we would do is anything tier zero has to be able to come up automatically so we'd look at how much resources we have as far as compute we know tier zero applications take x amount boom so that gets carved out automatically all right we got tier one which of these depending on the time of the outage right and depending on the, the stakeholders or the primary users of the application, we could figure out if a tier one or tier two application was going to actually be restored on the other side right away, right? So if we're thinking point of sale, we're 24-7, 365, we're always selling something, right? That's automatic, right? It's moving. Um, but there may be something that's a back of house, like third-party application that's not necessarily needed uh, until you know, eight o'clock the following morning and I'm at a 10 p.m. outage right now, right? Well, I don't need to worry about that system coming online right away. Yeah, so it's it's really a methodology process, right? But you have to understand how your applications work and who those primary users are. If you don't understand it, you're doing a firestorm. You're just like, all right, well, we're going to move all this stuff over, right? <laughs> and that's not going to work, right? I know from experience, I done that in the past um in previous engagements like in florida but during hurricane season it's like move everything i'm like we don't have enough compute to move everything so somebody's got to pick some stuff <laughs> yeah and, and we can't just grab it out of the rack put it in the truck and drive to the other data center there's a exactly. hurricane going on <laughs> exactly so you know we, we can't just pick it up move it turn it all on because that's not the case right and there's a lot of money and time invested in that to be able to do that um, yeah, and doing so, work up front and understanding your applications goes a long way to be able to have a more mature process. Yeah, and having that duplicate data center or the du- duplicate physical footprint. 
is huge. Not to mention the logical footprint too of the networking and everything else and being yep. able to switch logical networks because that's that's something that always throws applications for a loop too. If your whole infrastructure isn't built for that virtual flip, then you're suddenly working on new network fabric with completely different addressing and applications sometimes don't handle that very well. No, that's they why they want to be on their own box. Yeah, especially, you know, you have people, you know, you may have a loss of tribal knowledge or, you know, somebody may have done something like, you know, hard code an IP address into something. And it's like, yeah, move these VMs over, starting up on new fabric. And, oh, you know what? It's not working. Can't communicate to any of it. Oh, it's hard code. Now reinstall my application. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the application or the DHCP um, server is now on the switch, not on the um, infrastructure or on the, one of the servers. And yeah, yeah oh, man, yeah, little things, yeah. Little things, not that big of a little deal. Things. Yeah, there's a lot of things to think through. I mean, load balancers, router configs, DHCP, DNS. There's a lot of stuff to think through. Yeah, and and all of this is just like basic stuff, not even really the world of the hyper converged. And and you know, like you said, you were going from all of this into the hyper converged, where a lot of this is blended together into a single interface instead of three separate interfaces where you had to have three different experts around because typically your your SAN network or your SAN expert is not your network expert, is not your server expert. <laughs> they may be yeah, and, two of the three, and, but not all three until they get hyper-converted. Yeah, and none of those three understand the application. Uh, that's the other yeah. thing that's overlooked, right? It's like two trillion in a row can make it work. Right. And they're like, how does this application work? And they're pointing fingers. Everybody's pointing fingers at each other. It's like a Spider-Man meme. <laughs> right. You got three different Spider-Mans. They're like, all right, you understand application? You understand application? <laughs> no, that's the users. Who who cares about them? You know, the yeah. blinky light to blink it. We're good. Yeah. No, and the application, it doesn't matter how great you make the infrastructure and how fast the network is and how efficient you can deploy things. And at the end of the day, if the end users can't consume the application, the application sucks. It's not running good or it's yeah. not available. It, it doesn't matter how great your infrastructure is or how great the network is. The application is not available. It's yeah. not available. They, they, have a, they have a negative view of everything you just did. Yeah. So, all right, let's, let's move forward in this conversation. And so now... You've moved on to your next opportunity and you're not dealing with the hyper-converged locally. Now you're working with somebody else's infrastructure and you're moving, you're taking everything locally and putting it into the cloud. Um, uh -huh. What was, what was that process like to go 100% cloud? Because, you know, we always thought that we, that that was the ideal, but we always were like, well, there's gotta be something that we got to leave on premise. Well, of course you got the, uh, the networking fabric, um, or the networking layer, because everything needs to be able to talk to each other. But what other things, what was the last thing that you moved up into the cloud? <laughs> um, so I was working at a public company. And so the last thing we moved into the cloud was their data environment, which was in scope for SOX audit, right? So they're public company, right? So uh, everything is audited. Socks, right at the fall. Um, and I'm used to being audited, being in banking. I had auditors in every month, whether it was private, public, in house, whichever. And they just rotated. So I was getting audited every month. So, um, 
that was the last thing we moved. I think the overall size, we had a fairly massive SQL environment that was roughly, I want to say about 12 terabytes. Um, and we're talking all data reporting. We're talking billions of rows. We're talking various applications have to hit it, read that data. Um, senior executives and C-levels needed to be able to have their reporting applications hit the data in order to get accurate reports up to the hour, right? Um, and a lot of times they needed to get those together and have those put together for Wall Street. Um, and so that was the last component we moved. Um, and that took a lot of analysis. Um, you know, I hear people say, you know, move to the cloud, let's move to the cloud. We got to move to the cloud. And it's like, great. But understand, it is not quick. If you want to do it right and don't want to get bit later, it is not fast. Um, so and still a lot of work once you move. It took me that last component that I moved um, all in. It took uh, two years and nine months. Okay. So what was now in, in one sense, we're almost talking about the same kind of thing. Um, yes. Going from, you know, the traditional infrastructure to hyper-converge and going from the, again, that on-prem to cloud, it's almost the same kind of thing where you got to keep everything running all the time for mm -hmm. everybody. Um, but there's some major different concerns. What are what are the things that really stuck out as the difference between the two? Um, there, there's, there's a lot of different things to you know, kind of pull in. So this particular data center that we were moving into the cloud was third party hosted by Rackspace, right? And so it had been the company's data center for almost 10 years, I think. Um, and so you had a lot of tribal knowledge that was lost and a lot of ad hoc things that were stood up in that environment, right? So um, really that process, I, I described it at Cosmopolitan, having to understand every application and catalog it. Um, I was lucky that a lot of the same individuals that were cosmopolitan are at this public company and they had a similar process. So we were able to go through a similar process and recatalog and figure out these applications and who's doing what with them and how they work. Um, the gotchas that I didn't realize that, that were different were more user specific scenarios or use cases, right? Like users having direct access into applications. Um, like to a level I hadn't seen before. Um, you know, there were more uh, always on VPN connections, um, a lot more users that were able to access directly into data and components, right? And do various things. And so really having to figure out alternate solutions. Reporting and analytics is, is typically one of the ways that most users are grabbing or being given permission to get directly into applications like that. They're using it typically for that reporting and analytics were were you seeing for other uses or um reporting analytics um you know sharepoint right i mean let's right. let's be honest in you know, sharepoint environment there's so much things that could be customized in there or things that even if you have admin rights in sharepoint you don't see because you didn't create those private workspaces or whatever they are within sharepoint right um <laughs> and so and and a lot of data is based off of that Right. So they were running a lot of traditional things or a lot of, uh, um, you know, efficient processes or uh, business processes that were going through that. And so you had to understand to a certain level how you would impact moving those environments and, and what's going to be the workaround to move those. Yeah. Right. 
um, there were some of these areas where like, let's say you have one project to move to the cloud. Well, when you have 80 servers that are possibly represent about, you know, anywhere from 80 to 160 applications, you, that's one project. Well, that's now a program. Your program is to move to the cloud because you're going to have multiple projects to get yeah. that can to peel off those systems and you can't just do it one for one the way something looks in a data center and the way it moves to the cloud are two different things right and radical our CEO at the time was you know he's essentially our chief architect um but you're having to work with your cto your your enterprise applications group your security folks things like that because you need to figure out can we move this one for one and replicate it in the cloud right or do we need to refactor this application in the cloud, move it from maybe it doesn't need to be traditional SQL, maybe it needs to be SQL pass, right? Yeah. Um, and engineers love pass because, hey, I don't have to patch any servers. It's one less thing I got to worry about, right? Right. But how does the application? Um, did we configure failover for passing environment? Is there failover? And what's the cost, right? You have to do those details, right? When you're running the infrastructure and somebody runs a SQL statement, on a local data center, you have no idea what the costs are related to compute and RAM and things like that. But when they turn around and run that same SQL statement in the cloud, <laughs> whether it's SQL pass or a traditional SQL server, your costs can go through the roof. Yeah. They well, it, the, I mean, you can put a cap on it. You can say, okay, we're, we're only using these, this level of resources, um, just like you can with the stuff on-prem, but you can also open that up, which is one of the advantages of the cloud of saying, okay, let things spike. And, but yeah. that's where that cost that you're talking about comes in. That's where, exactly. uh, oh man. Yeah. Somebody yeah. select star from star. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> select star across 2 billion rows. Yeah. You needed a more, um, a more detailed, more mature SQL statement. Right. I, I just wanted to see how how many times or how much we sold of what over the last two years. What's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, until until you get that bill, right? And then the mm -hmm. next month, a bill from Microsoft or Amazon or whoever it is, and you're like, why did my cost go up fifty thousand dollars in a month? Yeah, and then then you're having to get somebody to start go looking through all of those logs, trying to figure that out to find that that spike that caused. Yeah. And so, you know, going through the process, we would actually do things like do the analysis on what was running on a virtual machine in that data center and what would be the estimated cost to put mm -hmm. it in the cloud, right? One for one, right? Looking at it. And we would do that estimate. And, and this is just high level process, but that was what my engineers would do is that they were required to give me an estimate before we could move it through change control, right? Once we put it into the environment, they were required to look at it like every, you know, I think it was two weeks or after 30 days to kind of see if it's using the same amount of resources as it was in the data center. If it wasn't, we would scale it down further, right? To reduce yeah. its cost. Cost control. Um, yeah, it's cost control. So it's it's the basis of FinOps. But before you can do FinOps, there's a lot of things you got to understand. You can't just jump in and do FinOps. It's like, oh, yeah, I see this running over here. Let me just turn it down. Well, if you don't understand how that business unit is using that process, before you know it, you could be killing something that's mission critical for a C-level, yep. right? It may have been somebody in a different department, a manager or a director that's doing it, but they may be doing a mission critical task for a C-level and you just turn down a SQL server or 
you know, decommed a, a VM that wasn't getting used except for once a month. Right. And, but that once a month was critical. It, it exactly. created knowledge that was needed. Yeah. Um, oh, man. I, and I had a most awesome question. Now I can't remember. <laughs> I hate that. Um, so the, uh, oh, okay. You know, one of the other things, uh, the initial argument for going to cloud from on-prem typically is that hardware refresh and that capital outlay. And if you stay in the cloud for more than one refresh cycle, that's when you start to see some of that um, savings that, or it's, it's the easily justifiable ROI of cloud. Um, did you guys run into any others? Did you see anything else that, that anybody that's trying to make this move that's tired of their aged infrastructure and then trying to go to the cloud? Um, what other things can you help? point them at for them to look for for ROI and justification to the cloud besides the fact that they don't have to do the updates to the OS and the hardware and the um all of the driver management and well sometimes <laughs> sometimes <laughs> so with with my last gig it was um you know it was they they had already set the standard that anything net new was built in Azure right um and they had some stuff in AWS and um, um, there were some things that we moved into Oracle cloud as well, um, that was required for that particular application, but anything that new was moved into Azure already. And what I was dealing with was helping them deal with that legacy environment and getting it to the cloud. Um, that being said, you know, if everything's in the cloud and you're familiar with the cloud architecture, it's a net benefit, right? So, you know, if you've got a team that thoroughly understands AWS or Azure, then it just makes sense to have everything in that component, right? To have everything in Azure or AWS. Um, if you don't have a team that has the knowledge about cloud, that's your first step, right? You need to ensure your team's knowledgeable about it, right? Um, um, do they have the, the training, the knowledge, you know, can, can we do this with the in-house team we have? And it's, right. that's a moving target too, because all of this stuff there, I mean, it's changed radically in the last eight years. We started doing our journey in 2015 and, and there were so many times like we're in this data center and it doesn't have these capabilities, but if we'd moved over to this data center, it had those capabilities. We start migrating over there and then suddenly they instantiate those capabilities where we were. And, but you know, that's, that's just some of it. So it's definitely a moving target and constant training for these people for them to stay up to date on capabilities, no matter which cloud center it is, you know, Google, exactly. AWS, um, Microsoft, yeah. IBM. I mean, I've, I've, been using, I've been using uh, Azure since 2014, 2015. Um, okay. And, you know, I've used AWS, a little bit of Google cloud, a little bit of Oracle and, I mean, I'm nowhere near an expert, but it changes so much, right? Then, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's a, to your point, it's a moving target. So, it's do I have the staff to get up to speed, and can they get up to speed in the timeline to where we can still run our components in this infrastructure as it stands today, right? Um, and then looking at that, can I actually get these things moved over? <laughs> right i mean you know if you talk to anybody um and if they're a 
uh, a rep for any of those big cloud companies or, you know, maybe a reseller or something like that. <laughs> Everybody will say, yeah, we can get you to the cloud. Yeah. You, know, you can run anything. Yeah, Continuarize it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Don't worry yeah. about it. But if we get it up there, it'll be more efficient. Um, and then, you know, your, your CFO or somebody comes to you later and says, hey, you're over budget by $2 million. And it's like, oh, I don't know how that happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that goes over well. That's a fun exactly. discussion. Um, and then not to mention the other one, and I was going to ask about this, you also have, or I ran into vendors who were like, no, we're not, we are not cloud compatible. You cannot put our stuff on the cloud. We won't support you. Um, you yeah. could, you're fully welcome to virtualize it in your own environment, but you can't virtualize it in the cloud. I'm like, yeah, it's the same thing. Well, just <laughs> virtualize it. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> this is yeah. how you access it. Oh, by the way, you're in Azure. The Hyper-V, I, for, I forget what they call their VMDKs or whatever it is, their disk files. But I mean, it's the same file, whether it's in on-prem data center running Hyper-V or it's in Azure. It's the same like VMDK type file. So yeah, I, yeah that's a lot of educating your your vendors. I dealt with that just moving to Hyper-Converge. I mean, I would deal with a lot of the the gaming companies or manufacturers and they're like, oh, well, you can't, you can't put this in Nutanix. I'm like, well, I'm running Nutanix with VMware on top of it, and we're already running your same VMs and VMware. So what's the problem? Yeah, oh, what's well, the difference? You need this, and this, and this. Oh, you need 34 or 32 CPUs? Okay, but you're only using like four CPUs and 10% of those. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so when you start to question a process, you find out sometimes that they don't know enough about their applications. No, because we're not talking, we're normally not talking to the technical teams. We're talking to the, um, the non-technical teams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and you know, you're, you're talking to, you're not talking to the people that, you know, get me somebody on the line that's actually installed the application in X environment or get me right. somebody on a, that wrote the code for the application. Let me ask them the question. Uh-huh. I can't tell you how many times I do that. So that's, that's where I kind of like, you know, I, I love my current role as a field CTO because, you know, even when uh, I have customers that they'll reach out and say, hey, we're looking at doing this or have you heard anything that does this? I'm like, let me understand your use case. What is it you're yeah. trying to accomplish? But then I go back to the conversation before and I'm like, look, we're, we want to find out if you can actually do this first. Then we'll listen to the sales pitch and some of the other stuff. But can you actually do X for this customer for me? Right. Can let me speak to a technical person, right? Put an engineer on the phone. Yeah. Right. Because if I start saying, you know, VLANs and compute and da 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 and your eyes gloss over, I'm not talking to the right person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like this conversation when we were talking about the uh, BCDR. <laughs> yeah. 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 I throw an acronym out there and you have to come back and say, uh, what's that? And I'm like, all right. Yeah. I'm not talking to the right person. Get me an engineer on the phone or get me somebody that can actually use this. Uh, yeah, and you know, tell me they can technically do it. And and you hit upon one of the most critical things in IT. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or what's the goal? You know, what yeah. are we trying to do? Just just let me just tell me the simple aspect of that, because then that way I can help make sure these things match up. Because if I don't know what the goal is, I, yeah, I can I can make that happen. But yeah. why? <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I, you know, some, sometimes, you know, I mean, you'll have, and I, I did this myself as an executive, right? And I mean, you know, people would ask me why, and I'm like, sometimes I, 
fight back. I'm like, you don't need to understand the why. But, you know, the more I think through it, sometimes it's just, it's good to allow people to understand what your thought process is, or maybe your people process, or just maybe some background on why you're doing it. Um, you'd be surprised how um, I've kind of found that sometimes you can kind of sell them onto your way of thought. Um, and they can go back and advocate even better for you. Like I've had conversations with, you know, people at VMware or some of the other vendors that I've talked to that I work with in the past and my past roles. And I'd say, Hey, I want to do this and this and this. Your platform's never done this before. I'm getting ready to do this. I'm going to let you know if it works, but this is what I want in return for that happening. Right. Yeah. Um, and they're like, well, we can't support you if you do that. I'm like, well, if it works, will you guys support me? Uh, yeah, let me write it through. But once they understand the use case that, hey, I need this to be 24-7, 365 because this is a casino property, right? I can't have this going down. They're like, yeah, we understand. Let me go back to my engineers, things like that. Um, yeah, we, um, previous CIO of mine uh, said we, we should be driving vendors roadmaps, right? And that, that's really what it is. Um, yeah, I want to get to here. Can you get me there or not? And if you can't, just say you can't. Right. right. You work with me on it, you know, or, you know, help me get away. Maybe not. I can, maybe I can't get all the way to C, but help me get halfway to B. <laughs> yeah. And it, at least be honest about it. You know, how yeah. long is it going to be until you can get to C? Because there's, yeah. I've talked to too many frontline people who, who were just trying to make the sale. Um, and oh, yeah, we'll get to C. We're, we're already, we're about to release that. Mm -hmm. And then, then you finally get in and you're getting a little deeper. You're talking to that engineer and they're like, wait, say what? No, <laughs> no. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've had, I've had, uh, yeah, my previous roles, I had some conversations with some technology CEOs of certain manufacturers. I won't mention they're like, yeah, yeah, we got that on the roadmap. It's coming out in Q2 or Q3. And they're like, you know, they come knocking at Q2. Three and they're like, hey, when are you going to send us a check and buy some of this or buy some of that? And I'm like, did you do the one thing I asked for? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're getting around to it. I'm like, well, I'm not cutting you check. You have one job. Yeah. <laughs> I only wanted that. Yeah. You, you had, I had one ask and you said, yes, you didn't deliver. No. Nope. <laughs> well, we didn't say which year. We just said Q2. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, that's so frustrating when they do that. Um, so what was the hardest learned lesson from moving everything to the cloud? Oh, what's, what's the thing that sticks? What's the thing that immediately comes to mind as one of the gotchas that you ran into uh, from the cloud migration or was, or was your experience with all of the other data center stuff? Did that make that easy? Couldn't have been easy because you said two two years and nine months. So, yeah, no, it, I, there was a couple of different things, but the two things that stand out the most were um, from a financial perspective, right? Um, thinking of moving to the cloud, thinking about how much it was going to cost out the gate and keeping that as my metric, like trying to meet a budget. Um, that that kind of defined how we were going to do things in a low cost fashion, which was great. Okay. Um, the things I learned was if you're thinking about it from that mindset, if you set a budget right out the gate of I can only, you know, have this much cloud costs year over year, maybe to increase 1%, 2%, 10%, whatever your budget threshold is, 
Um, as you start to dig into your applications, you're going to find out that technically you could move an application one-to-one and replicate it or you know, forklift it or whatever you want to do, but you're going to exceed your budget. So how do I refactor this application? Right. So that was one of the first things we did. So that that process, you know, forced me to get more involved in the coding, the SDLC process, some of the uh, some of the data and business analytics components, things like that, things that aren't traditionally in my wheelhouse, but um, I can figure it out if I have to. Right. And so that was one of the biggest things. Right. Um, having to refactor uh, data heavy applications. Um, maybe you need to move them into something of a uh, Kubernetes, right? Or you're having to use data factories or things like that, right? So um, that domain-driven design that the organization uh, I was with last, you know, that was kind of our that was our goal was to have that domain-driven design, um, and it was one of our tenets. And so making sure that what I was moving was fitting that design, um, and also working with the architects within the department to come up with ways to get that moved over um, and then track those costs to make sure I'm staying within the budget. So budget first, it helps that it then helps you figure out how you're going to refactor applications to stay within the budget. Um, the second thing is like, you know, like I said, budget first and then refactoring data Well, parallel to that or right next to that is, you know, visibility of cloud after the fact. You know things like monitoring and logging, right? You may you may do things like monitoring and logging now. How are you doing those in a traditional data center? Syslog, you know. I don't know if a ton of people are still using Solar Winds, but we weren't. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Uh, no comment. <laughs> no comment. Uh, but you know, whatever your monitoring and logging platform is for visibility, right? Right. Make sure you're going to have that same visibility when you move to the cloud. And I'm not just talking about, you know, things that go bump in the night, like, you know, a server going down or a job failing or something like that, but also from the standpoint of FinOps, right? Um, can you actually go through and singularly find an application and figure out how much it costs you? The VM, the data storage, the backup, the failover, the networking the security groups. Can you do that per application? Yeah, because especially if you start talking about paths, like you were talking about platform as a service, and yes. you're blending multiple applications onto a single infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. So pieces of it. And or even back, just back to that. Yeah. You know, we yeah. were talking about that, that, um, that query getting out of hand, same mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know? Yeah. You, you have this one machine and suddenly it spikes in CPU, which application caused it? Exactly. Right. And that gets back to that, like that application catalog component or process that I was kind of talking through that we did at Cosmopolitan, um, right. something similar at the previous job I was at. And again, it's, well, it's not some, some is almost identical, but again, you know, one of the things that I had my engineers perform was any deployments that went into a cloud environment had to have application tag, right? That tag was the application ID for the catalog, right? So let's say I'm deploying a, I don't know, uh, some financial system, you know, at finance one, right? It's application tag is one zero zero one or something. Any and all resources, whether it was infrastructure as code, you know, a manual deployment, PowerShell, whatever it was, any and all resources tied 
to the application had had that tag before they went into production, right? So they were doing these in lowers first to try to learn, right? So then I could turn around and I could go into any of my cloud platforms and application tag. All right, here's my cost by application, right? And and then have some semblance of all right, am I staying in budget, right? Yeah. Or is this cost me more than I thought it was going to cost? But if it did go up. You know, being able to trace that back to changes in the environment and like, here's why the cost went up. You know, yep. when I originally scoped the project, it was this, but then, you know, maybe we did some new initiative or, you know, we, we decided to do something for a security component or, you know, something in the business wanted to happen and we upped a resource or created more resources or whatever it was. Now I can see where that application cost increased. Then it's like, all right, this is my budget, but it increased here because of this. Yeah. And and because then you can explain it and or, you know, the consumers and the people who help drive that increase of consumption, they get to explain it. You just get to say, okay, this application started doing this on this date. What did you guys change in your processes? Because I made sure it was running. I made sure everything was working. But You guys, you know, and then it's not just your, it's, it's the business's concern, not just IT's responsibility because it's a blinky light. Um, yeah. And what about and that's, those are my two primary um, things learned and concerns. Right. And yeah. what I wish I'd gotten to was a more proactive component of that, like being able to show almost real time or even before the change is made that, you know, this is going to impact this and this measure. Right. And maybe have somebody in the business side off and say, hey, I'm okay with this increased cost of X and add it to Drew's budget. <laughs> you know, we we ran into things like that, but we ran into it especially, in, and we I wish we'd started off with that tagging. We ultimately ended up tagging like you're talking about, but it was because we had a multi-tenancy situation. So single cloud tenant, but we had multiple organizations leveraging that infrastructure and allocating the cost per those companies. So we had to put the tags on not only the application, but okay, so here's one application that three companies are using. And you know how much goes to company A, company B, and company C, because they're all running the same ERP. So we got one instance of the ERP. And you know, yeah, we could have used the simple things like, okay, we got five users here, 10 users there, and 20 users there. But um <laughs> They all wanted to know why the costs were what they were. And and if you could use those tags, that, that helped greatly. Hey guys, this is Phil Howard, founder of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I just want to take a few minutes to address something. It has become fairly apparent, I'm sure all of you will agree, over the years that slow vendor response, vendor response times, vendors in general, the, the average is mediocre. Support is mediocre. Mediocrity is the name of the game. Not only is this a risk to your network security, because I've seen vendors on numerous occasions share sensitive information, but there's also a direct correlation to your budget and your company's bottom line. Not to mention the sales reps that are trying to sell you and your CEO and your CFO on a daily basis. That causes a whole nother realm of problems that we don't have time to address. Our back office program at Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, we've put together specifically for IT leadership, and it's on a mission to eliminate this mediocrity 
And the best part is that we're doing this in a way that will not cost your IT department a dime. So if you'd like us to help you out, get better pricing, better support, and jump on pressing issues in minutes, not days, then contact us now so we can get on a, a call with you and conduct a value discovery session where we find out what you have, why you have it, and where you want to go and how we can improve your your life, your IT department, and your company's bottom line. What you're going to end up with is, number one, just faster support from partners who care about your organization's uptime and bottom line. And because you're going to be able to access our $1.2 billion in combined buying power, you'll be able to benefit uh, significantly from historical data. And on top of that, you'll also benefit from the skills of hundreds of on-demand experts that we have working behind the scenes that are all attached to our back office support program. So if you'd like, again, none of this is ever going to cost you a dime. At the very least, it's going to open your, your eyes to what's possible. Let our back office team provide you the high touch solutions and support that your IT team deserves so that you can stop calling 1-800-GO-POUND-SAND for support. Now, if you're wondering, what does this apply to? This applies to your ISPs, your telecom providers, all your application providers, whether you're a Microsoft shop or a Google shop, what you might be paying for AWS, even Azure, co-location space, any of those vendors that you're paying a monthly bill to, we can help you with. Hey, it's Greg, the Frenchman secretly managing the podcast behind the curtain. To request your one-on-one call, contact us at internet at popularit.net. And remember, it will never cost you a dime. Hidden gifts. And let's let's finish up with, did you find any hidden gifts inside of either the hyper-converged or the cloud? Uh, what was something that surprised you and you said, ah, yes, for the win! <laughs> um, there wasn't one singular huge one. I mean, I guess overall, I underestimated how great performance would be um, in both their environments, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I knew there'd be a performance gain, right? Even moving from traditional over to hybrid and verge, and then going from a data center up into the cloud, I knew that there would be gain. a marginal performance gain, but like, it's like night and day, honestly. Um, there's a lot of work up front, but the, the net benefit of putting a resource up there is just, it's, I mean, it's like, it's like dropping a, a LS Corvette engine in a, you know, in a Toyota or something like that. It's, it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, it's, you get that performance, that power, and then you start thinking, oh man, I, I should have put the LS in like a, 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 a GTO or something. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it, Right out the gate is that. I mean, the net benefit of the performance out the gate is great. Um, you know, the, this is also that goes right with that warning of the budget because yes. you, you got that performance, man. You hit that gas pedal, <laughs> the, the gas tank is going to get empty. Exactly. The budget yeah, is going to go away. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you have to make sure you don't oversize things for sure. Um, yeah. But the, the other side of it is the efficiency gains. Um, you know, um, you know, going into the hyperconversion environment. I mean, the engineers, my engineers were deploying VMs, you know, fully patched, ready to go, you know, within, you know, 15, 20 minutes. 
right? And it was just sitting there waiting for the application to be installed. I mean, it was, and I mean, fully load balanced, redundant applicate or servers, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that was great. And the same with the cloud, right? I mean, as I was leaving, we were pushing every, all the engineers to infrastructure as code, right? Everything that was getting deployed via code. And the engineers weren't even, future state engineers weren't going to deploy, you know, the production team, support team was going to deploy, right? So, you know, an engineer writes out all the code to get everything going. They put it in a pipeline. It goes through approval process. And somebody clicks a button and the engineer's like, uh, they're looking over their shoulder like, oh, yeah, it looks like it's working. Okay, my job's done. Uh, <laughs> so um, those are those net benefits. Those, those, are, those are great. But, you know, one of the... As being a being an executive and being responsible for, you know, the infrastructure, the stability of the platform, you know, um, you know, you have a responsibility for security too because you know it it all it all falls on the infrastructure team, uh, yes. some operational component of it, right? So you have vested interest in the security too. Plus, I'm always the type that doesn't like the name in a paper for any reason. So, um, you know, that being said. Uh, you know, the the insights you gain into your environment and actually understanding it and being able to, you know, talk through some of these things is, you know, it's, it's next level. It, it it helps, you know, especially for me being an engineer by trade. I can't punch the keyboard as much as I like, right? The engineers, they don't, they don't, uh, your, your role doesn't dictate you to have the rights to be able to deploy a server. I'm like, crud. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> But to, to I like, these, I like uh, hearing those jet engines take off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least being able to poke around in environments and understand what's going on, right? The level of insights you get. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're an executive or a director or even a manager in IT, um, you have a responsibility to know what your team's doing and um, what what's getting done, right? Yeah. Uh, and and if you know that you're you're on your way and if you know that with a process behind it you're even better off yeah then then you're the type of employee we need yeah <laughs> exactly not, not, not just one of the ones that we have to have you're one of the ones that brings value and and that we need hey yeah through you got anything personal out there that you're uh doing that you want to support or or upsell or or tell the world about uh, I'm catching you flat-footed with that, and <laughs> you. but you know, lots of people are doing. They got some kind of a side hustle that they love doing, or you know, even if you're like a soccer coach or something. <laughs> um, no, nah, you know, I don't. I don't have a lot of side hustles, or I don't have anything going on like that. Um, you know, one of the things I like to do is just I like to share my knowledge around IT. Um, I was an adjunct professor. Um, part-time adjunct professor for a number of years teaching IT courses. Um, and, you know, I've, you know, my oldest son is now an IT manager. So, you know, I, you know, kind of walked him through the progression of how to get into information technology and things like that. And he's gone from a, a technician all the way up to IT manager in a short time. So I, I hope you feel a little bit of what I'm talking about. But um, one of the things I do right now is uh, I do IT works. Um, I think mean, sponsored by like Tech Impact. Uh, they're originally not in like the Philadelphia area, but they have a uh, they have a uh, chapter here in Las Vegas, and so it's really about you know uh, mentoring young individuals that maybe they're not going to go to college out the gate, right? Maybe they're in high school and they're like, I really like this IT stuff, but 
I don't want to go to college or I can't afford to go to college or whatever it is. And they can go to uh, IT works to get back and they can take a, I think it's like an eight week course. Um, and hopefully they, they train them up to come out of that with some certifications and they get internships. Right. Uh, so doing lunch and learns with that and uh, mentoring um, some of the kids um, through that process is uh, one of the things I like to do. So that's, that's fun. It's rewarding. Um, you know, it, it right. helps, uh, if, if I can help other people, um, get through, um, some of the hoops of learning the trade, then I'm all for it. I didn't have a lot of, uh, mentors coming up through it initially. Um, but the, the few I did have, um, they made a huge impact. So, um, I just, I try to share some of that knowledge. Right on. Well, thank you for that. That's that's awesome because that you know I, I think that's part of why we're doing the podcast is because we want to help share that knowledge, share that experience, and and help teach the next group so that they don't have to struggle like we did when we were going through all of this stuff. Yeah. So, uh, truly appreciate your time today. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, as we come to a close on another dissecting popular IT nerds, I, I want to invite all of the listeners to uh, comment, rate podcast on iTunes or wherever you're grabbing your copy. And please um, just let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we really appreciate the uh, time and the support of the program. So uh, thanks for nerding out with us geeks. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. <laughs>